Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's my pleasure today to be here with Gabe Escobedo, who's really a really cool, fascinating, rising political star. I'll say that about him. Uh, he is somebody who kind of emerged onto the scene a couple of years ago. And um, I'm just really looking forward to have a conversation and talk to him because he started doing some great things. He's continuing to do some great things. Here's a guy who just got appointed to the Civilian Formation Commission, and so he's going to be right there at the heart of some really important decisions as it relates to the police department and, and equity, and he's also on the Santa Barbara City Planning Commission, and uh, he's doing a great job there, and um, he's uh, just somebody who I think we're going to have a great conversation with. How are you doing, Gabe, today? I'm doing well, Josh. Thank you for having me, and thanks for the, the polite uh, and generous introduction. <laughs> No problem. Um, Gabe, let's, let's dive right in with uh, sort of um, what you did uh, most recently, and then we'll kind of go back a little bit. But you were recently appointed to the Civilian Formation Commission, which is a, a, a panel of 13 people who are basically going to decide what the uh, civilian police system is what they're calling it is going to look like. So can you talk to me a little bit about why that was important for you to apply and what are the issues that you're going to be focused on as you look to form this uh, process, this system, this review board that uh, the police department's going to have? Yeah. And I think it's a great question. So um, for those that got to watch my interview, I brought uh, for city council, I brought this up, but and we'll probably delve into it a little bit later when we talk about just kind of my background. But for me, this is an incredibly personal topic. Uh, my life was affected and has been affected um, quite a bit by what some people dub as uh, a justice system. And, and I and others talk about it as an incarceration system, right? And um, most notably in my life is I grew up in a single parent household um, with my mom, my brother, uh, for much of my childhood, my sister, her husband at the time, my nephew. Um, and my mom would work two or three jobs just to, to make ends meet. And uh, my dad for, for most of my childhood was in and out of prison. Um, uh, Drug addiction was an issue. Um, I had family members who have been incarcerated. I have friends um, who either never made it, have been incarcerated, have um, had those experiences. And as I've grown up and I've, I've kind of thought about these issues, I've done the reading, I've, I've been able to uh, move to different parts of California and um, get, get an education and, and have these conversations, what has struck me the most is, is just, and this was in um, that independent article, is just how insidious uh, this system is, right? And it's not only insidious, it's resilient. And the reason why it's so resilient is because it has so many different levels. You have um, aspects at the federal level, the state level, county, city, on university campuses, K through 12. And so in order to address it and really um, focus on what it is supposed to be, it's supposed to be there for safety. 
we tell ourselves that it's supposed to be there for rehabilitation. But one of the things that I've witnessed in my life is um, I vividly remember when my dad was on the up and up and he was trying really hard. And even then uh, we think about the ways that we, we punish so beyond the time served. And it's, it's people leaving um, prison with debt, right? And some of that debt is not even related to the crime that they committed. And then on top of that, um, a stipulation of the parole is that they have to pay that debt. And then we make it as hard as possible for them to get a job. And so it becomes this cycle where uh, recidivism is the norm. And the reason why I applied to the, the Civilian Formation Commission is uh, it is the opportunity for us to address it at the city level. And when, when I think about this topic, I don't have kids, but I have nephews and nieces. And I think about a lot about the world that I'm gonna leave them. And uh, when I see kids, I live on the east side now. So when I see kids riding their bikes, playing basketball, sometimes ding dong ditching my house, um, I think about them too. And we need to break the cycle. And this is our opportunity to do it at the city level. And one of the things that um, I think we need to, to celebrate is this is the most diverse commission or board, and I'm willing to say in the history of Santa Barbara. Right. And in a, and we have people of um, different races, different life experiences, different um, gender, sexual orientation, different abilities. And, and in a year where we have a lot to thank uh, black women for it, we need to thank black, black women for this. And so, um, as you know, this was brought on by Crystal and Simone and, and others. And it's at a time where there's the most political will possible for us to make a real difference. It's an opportunity that I wanted to be a part of and that I didn't want to miss that opportunity to provide an oversight body with real authority, right? This can't be about show. This has to be about real authority and accountability. Uh, so it's something that I'm really passionate about. It's something that uh, I'm excited to be a part of. And I'm hoping to bring my life experience, the skills that I've built uh, through both education, now on planning commission, uh, and just try my hardest to make sure that we can move the move the ball a foot two feet as far as we can on this and then the job doesn't stop there this is the first of many um things that we need to do for our city to truly address um policing safety uh resources uh, for our city so that for this next generation and the generation after, uh, we can break that cycle. Yeah, that's a good point is that we're so, we've done, we've gone so far since June 1st, 2020, but I think some people might forget how we got here, but, you know, it was, it was Simone and 
Crystal and, and some others, of course, but uh, them as sort of the, the, the leaders of, of that. And so you had strong black women who were like, not necessarily following the path that had been set out by others, but carving their own path. And it has led to change like really quickly. And it's, that process is still going. And so it's a good acknowledgement that, you know, that and, and how we got here. Can you talk about your experience a little bit? I mean, you, you talked about how these issues are close to home. And when I read Nick Welsh's piece on you, um, you talked about how you always have your identification with you and your registration and you're ready to do that. Um, I think that it's really easy for people to think that racism is just um, the flagrant or the blatant or the obvious, the, the, the name calling or the rampant discrimination. Like, and so it's easy for people to say that doesn't exist anymore. Okay. Racism doesn't exist anymore because that doesn't happen. But I think you know, and I think we, we both know that there's like this whole other area that's actually um, even more, uh, you know, insidious because it, it happens in little points over time, over and over and over and over. And uh, you can't really like say that one thing, but when they accumulate, all of a sudden you feel as though, wow, I have this sort of mentality where I've been beaten up for, for years. And uh, everybody over here is saying, oh, that doesn't happen anymore. So can you talk about, like, here you are, you're a professional and, you know, you're doing really good things. But can you talk a little bit about kind of what your experience has been like with this, this sort of the way you've been treated by, by leaders and, and authority figures? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think you, you kind of hit it on the head. And it's something that I talked about in my interview and in my um, application letter to, to council for the CFC is, you know, uh, racism isn't always as blatant as uh, we cut, as we sometimes see in, in videos or um, even when we saw uh, during the difference between Black Lives Matter protests and the insurrection that, that took place in the Capitol, it's never, it's not, and oftentimes not that blatant. And it's written into policies and it's written into um, the, the structure of how we build uh, mechanisms of power, right? And so for me, uh, I remember uh, growing up and having I was oftentimes on my own. My mom's working all the time. Um, I didn't have my dad around. So it was kind of me and my brother, a uh, very little oversight, but I would have friends, right? And they had their uh, dad who would have the talk with them. And so I learned very early on uh, from discussions is, okay, the glove compartment, that's for your tissues. That's for all of the uh, stuff that, um, you don't need when you get pulled over, but the center console that is right there next to me, that's where you keep on the very top, your insurance, your registration, because the last thing you wanna be doing is, is reaching over and whatnot. Um, so I, I bring that up because those are the um, calculations that we have in community members now that calculations that they make uh, oftentimes, and this still happens to this day, is I'll walk into a store and I almost feel uh, compelled to buy something because I feel like if I walk out with buying something, they're going to think I stole something, right? 
and so so it's so funny i don't interrupt you i do the same thing like every time i walk into the store and it, they don't have what i want it's like I was, you know i'm doing something i just need one thing and i'll walk out and i was like damn like i feel like they're thinking i'm gonna like why didn't he buy anything <laughs> Totally. I don't know that a lot of people relate to them, but it's just like, I feel like such a moron, you know, and I'm trying to figure out my path. Like, how do I get out of here without being noticed yeah. the least? Like, I haven't done anything. I just decided not to buy anything, you know? So exactly. Like, <laughs> exactly. I'll walk around with my hands in my pockets and uh, <laughs> strolling around. So it, it's it's little things like that. And, and that is um, some of the most benign, right? There are other people um, uh black men and women in particular that are making these calculations and that is trauma like that every time that uh you you talk about that embarrassment that's trauma and it builds up and it adds up and uh and there are other ways just kind of how um i think sometimes and i don't know what the solution is but i mean think about what time are our meetings right I'm very privileged in the fact that um, I have a job where I have the support of my employer to flex my hours so I could work later into the night or on weekends to make a 1, 1 p.m. meeting. That's yeah. not possible for, for a lot of people. City council meetings, they're at 2 p.m. So who's showing up to these meetings? Who's showing up to these workshops? I can tell you because I have the flexibility to attend those that not very many people that, that look like me, look like you, look like uh, Crystal or Simone. Um, mm -hmm. The Not many people with disabilities or... So it's... It exists in that manner too. And uh, what sort of feedback are we taking into consideration when we're talking about really, really important decisions for the city? Uh, whether it's police oversight, uh, housing, climate, climate change policy, all of these things. So, so you're right. It, it, it is, it is insidious in that manner. It's not always blatant. Yeah. So let's go back in time. Now. I remember uh, being at Santa Barbara city hall. This is before the pandemic and they had the appointment process for uh, new council members. And, uh, you know, there were lots of people applied, lots of good people applied, and uh, you were one of those people who applied. And I remember um, just sort of being struck like, oh, I don't know this guy, you know, uh, you know, who is he? What's he doing? And like, you did a really good interview. You did a really good job. Um, Megan Harmon, she did really good, too. <laughs> she kind of stole the show. So, you know, they end up going with her. But can you talk to me about why? Uh, how did that become on your radar? And why did you think to apply? And what was that experience like for you? Yeah. So, uh, so it's so it's so funny. Um, the the opportunity I was living in the sixth district. Uh, the opportunity presented itself, but a lot of uh, things led up to that moment. So I was attending these public workshops, these public meetings. I was watching city council meetings. I was I was watching commission meetings and board meetings, depending on what the topic was. And a number of things kind of came to me in separate moments and they all culminated into, into that application. But uh, the first thought was, man, there are a lot of people that do not look like me. Um, oftentimes they're older, uh, they're whiter. Um, and it, 
so that was the, the first thing I, and I thought about that and it was kind of in the back of my mind. And, and then there were, were topics that are very important to me. Housing is one that is, again, very close to home. I have experienced housing insecurity multiple times in my life where if I didn't have the support system I had or if things didn't break right for me in that moment, I would not have had anywhere to, to sleep that night. And, and so at the time, there were a lot of these discussions about uh, housing policy. There were a lot of discussions about uh, homelessness and most notably at, the, at that time was the Tiny Homes Project, right? Oh, yeah. So I had, done, I had done some research into all of these different topics that I found really, uh, really personal. And it's not to say that uh, the solution to any one of these problems is easy, but the fact of the matter is we have the solutions. We're not waiting for uh, a miracle technology to si solve climate change. We know how to, to solve it. it we're not... Uh, waiting for a miracle approach to uh, address homelessness adequately. We know how to, how to solve it, right? The issue is always how do, where do we get the funding and, and that sort of thing. And that's a tough enough challenge as it is. And so leading up to the, the appointment process, uh, there were meetings, there were discussions, there were workshops talking about all of these issues. And there never seemed to me to be enough urgency to them. Because for me and for people who experience housing insecurity or people who know uh, what the repercussions are for this next generation if we don't adequately solve climate change are, or uh, people who are serious about solving homelessness or a myriad of topics, the job is already hard enough. And so, so I was disheartened uh, for the Tiny Homes Project in particular, and that's one that kind of really got me going, is we all know the job is, is hard enough. The task is big enough. But to see so many people come out, and I get it, the, the outreach effort could have been better. It was a really quick timeline, but the funding was only there for a finite period of time. And so to have so many people come out and say, you know, I'm fully in support of this project, but not in my neighborhood, or I don't want, uh, and the way that I think they manufactured it in their minds was that we, they were going to have homeless people in their neighborhood and they were going to be um, urinating in their bushes and drinking on the corners. When in reality, this makes our neighborhood safer. Mm -hmm. This is the solution. You're talking about getting these people the support that they need. And, and it was so disheartening that there were so few people actually saying that during public comment. It was a long public comment period. Mm -hmm. and, and so then uh, on council, and I, I get it, there are pressure. It's much easier for me to be sitting at home to say, uh, where was the political courage? I get it. Mm -hmm. but, but at that time I was fired up and I'm yeah. just, I, the opportunity had presented itself and I was like, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to be the best applicant, but I'm going to give it a shot because we need, we need that voice on, on council to, to push these things forward with a little bit more urgency. Right. I was, um, 
always encouraged to see uh, people like Oscar Gutierrez on, on city council and, and um, Kathy Mario on, on city council because they looked like me, right? And, but we needed more urgency. And so I had applied and <laughs> this will show you uh, kind of how much of a political novice I especially was at the time and I still consider myself so, but I went into the process thinking uh, you, I'm gonna put together the best application letter possible. I'm gonna submit the best application possible and I'm gonna interview the best because this is exactly like a job interview mm -hmm. and they're gonna pick the best person based on those things. And I was very wrong. I remember the only two people that I had, had met with were Oscar and, and Kathy. And so I only met with Oscar because he reached out to me to ask for a meeting. And so I went and got coffee with him and he, he asked me, uh, you, oh, how did your other conversations go with the other council members? And I was so dumbfounded. I was like, what do you mean? None of them reached out. He's like, you gotta, you gotta reach out, man. That's how you get things like this. If you have to go and schedule meetings with them and talk to them. And so this was only a couple of days before the appointment where they eventually chose Megan Harmon. And so I'm scrambling, trying to get meetings. And I only got one with uh, Kathy over the phone. Mm -hmm. uh, but I learned a very important lesson from that that helped me when it came time to apply for planning commission and and now the civilian formation commission and uh, you know it was a it was a very good experience because a number of things yes I didn't get it I was um, somewhat disappointed but from that experience I met so many people people came up to me and said, wow, you did, a, you did a, a really good job. And I really liked what you said about this topic or this topic. And from there is, is where I started uh, connecting with people and talking about the issues that I wanted to, to push forward, right? And just because you don't get on city council, there's so many other ways to do it. And, and so my, from that point forward, my, mind shifted to, okay, I, I, if I'm serious about what I said about being fired up about these issues, you have to stay engaged. So I attended the public workshops. I attended uh, council meetings, planning commission meetings and uh, design re review board meetings and did public comment and that sort of thing. So uh, it was at times dis disappointing at times, um, discouraging, but in, in many ways, that's kind of how my life story has gone is uh, I learn a lot from the times where I'm not successful and they, I try as, as best as possible to leverage those things into future opportunities or future ways to get the same thing I wanted to get accomplished done. Yeah, you could have very easily just gone away and uh, been sort of soured on the experience and being one of those people who criticizes everything at City Hall. Um, there's plenty of people who run for office or applied for appointments who are like that, but you went the different route and said, well, let me just figure out how to be involved. And uh, that's really what is at the core of why somebody should want to run for city council. It's not for attention on themselves, but <clears throat> for the fact that they care about the city. So, you know, now you're, you're back. It's interesting. I, it, this person was before your time, but when you talk about going to city hall and not seeing 
people who look like you, you know, um, you know, we've had a, a lot of diversity with uh, district elections. But back in the early 2000s, I don't know if you know him, but uh, Babatunde Fulayami was the first black man elected to the Santa Barbara City Council. And uh, he was amazing. Like, if you ever have any time, go back and watch the city archives of, of his years. It, it might have been uh, 2003 to 2005, something like that. Um, 2001 to 2003. Was, so he only served two years uh, because it was one of those things where the mayor, uh, uh, Marty Bloom, got elected mayor. And then there was an extra spot that was open and Babatunde got that last spot. So he got the rest of her term. And then when he uh, went to get reelected, he did, he did not get reelected. But those two years were like the most dynamic uh, city council meetings in terms of direct of quotes. Like this guy was just like so eloquent and so inspirational, you know, and the, the, the downside was, you know, he, he, got, he would take criticism for not like thoroughly diving into the staff reports and, you know, the history and researching, but he didn't really need to because he spoke from the heart and he's just like amazingly well connected to the community that he could actually just talk about these issues in a way that was authentic as opposed to, um, you know, maybe somebody who does a lot of research and then sort of like mm-hmm. parents talking points. Uh, but that that's, you know, that's, I always remember about Tune And then when he was not reelected, thinking, oh man, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's too bad because he brought a lot to, um, to the council. Uh, you know, when you, when you, when you, when you ran for that, you know, it, it's not a job experience. It's not interviewing for a job. Like mm-hmm. the most qualified people, uh, for the most part, are not the ones who serve on city councils. They're, they're the ones who are best at politics. They're the best at campaigning. You know, they have money and message and uh, organizing behind them, and they get elected. So it's good that you you sort of you sort of understood that. And uh, I was at that uh, Louise Lowry Davis Center. Um, meeting where everybody came up and spoke about how we want to help the homeless but not in this neighborhood and it was kind of the worst of Santa Barbara that I've seen yeah I, I was it, it, like these are people who are kind like liberal Santa Barbara people who were who were saying things that I would imagine if they went back and listened to them today they'd be like I can't believe I said that in public it's, it was kind of a sad moment you know and of course the funding had already been cut in half and the whole thing was falling apart anyway so uh, but i i know what you mean about sort of like thinking wow i can't believe santa barbara's not better than this um so you stuck around right and then now you're on the planning commission so can you talk about what what do you do there that's impactful what what kind of things what kind of role can you have as a planning commissioner that affects all of these issues that you care about mostly yeah it's a, it's a good question and uh, for me, it, I went into planning commission with one perspective, right? I, my application for planning commission really revolved around housing. And that's, that's what I wanted to focus on is I, I knew that the nitty gritty work was happening at the planning commission level. And uh, leading up to the, to the application process, I was fortunate enough to have John Campanella at the time and his term was coming to an end, kind of mentor me and show me, okay, these are the types of things that you're gonna see in a staff report. Here's how you read it. Here's how you delve into it. And it was nice because he's a very highly technical person. So that I can't tell you how many times I'd be sitting with him and he'd be saying something, I had no idea what it means and I'm just writing it down so I could research it later. But 
that's the the frame of reference that I went into it with of just saying, okay, we need affordable housing, right? We need housing, period, but we need to figure out a way on a procedure and a and some mechanics that is conducive for actual affordable housing for people that live here, for people that work here, uh, but live 50 miles away, uh, people who used to live here, grew up here, but now they can no longer afford to live here. And so that is what I was thinking about when I had applied to the planning commission. And if you went back and watched the interview, that's kind of what I talked about. And I think that's what a lot of people think, think about. But you know, I have enjoyed my time and that's not to say it's been easy. It, it has not. Um, but I've enjoyed my time on planning commission because it has really given me, there are a wide range of topics that I am passionate about that come to planning commission and that I did not expect. And uh, some of those are climate uh, related policies that I didn't expect that those were gonna come to planning commission. And so it's kind of given me a platform to, uh, to use my activism through policy, right? And so anyone who's watched the planning commission meeting, these are, um, if you do watch a planning commission meeting, uh, you're my type of person, but I understand why people probably don't is because it, they're highly technical, getting into the, the details, uh, figuring out why you use the word uh, may instead of shall yeah. in, in an ordinance or, or, or whatever, what it is, but it's, it's really given me an opportunity to advocate for, for a lot of the things that I spoke about in that city council um, speech and that application. And so I've focused quite a bit of my time on planning commission on yes on housing. And it's something that I am still very passionate about today, but uh, quite a bit on climate related issues. And the reason being is there's, I wasn't hearing that from other commissioners when I was watching other planning commission meetings before I was on there. And so I feel that it's necessary to bring that lens into these conversations because they, they intersect. Housing is a, a climate related policy, right? If we have people driving combustion engine cars from really far away, that's not good for our climate. And uh, if we're including natural gas infrastructure into our new development, whether it's housing or otherwise, that's not good for our environment, right? So uh, it's, like I said, it hasn't been easy per se, but it's been, it's been a pleasure and I've really enjoyed myself. Yeah, and I grew up in Goleta and uh, so many of my friends moved, you know, they, they could not live here. You know, if their parents owned a home, uh, maybe they're fortunate enough to stay, but a lot of them didn't. And, uh, you know, Ventura, Lompoc, Santa Maria, or just out of, out of state sort of thing. Can you talk about this whole, like the big picture thing is how does Santa Barbara build more housing, more rental housing, but not lose what is Santa Barbara? Okay, that's sort of the, you know, there's the Sheila Lodges of the world who talk about that. You know, we're talking about e-bikes and she's talking about, uh, you know, views, right? Like the tower. And so how do we keep Santa Barbara, the, the paradise, you know, the, 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 
the stereotype, the cliche, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's a great place to live um, and still build lots of rental housing and still kind of make Santa Barbara so special and that charm. I mean, how, what is the balance and, you know, what is your viewpoint on how to do that? Yeah. And uh, I'm glad that you asked. And, you know, uh, I will say Sheila has been extremely helpful for me. Uh, and I, I give her a lot of credit is that she took a lot of time early on, even before I was on planning commission to say, Hey, listen, here's the history of Santa Barbara. Here are some of the big moments in our history. And I've really enjoyed, uh, having her on planning commission because I learned so much, right? I didn't grow up here. So I, I'm not blessed with that historical context. So, uh, so I got to give her credit there. And then when you think about uh, the future of Santa Barbara, right? And there's oftentimes this friction that you have, we need more housing. And with that, we, we have a conversation about, okay, what type of housing at what income level and where And then you have the conversation of the, we need to preserve the character of Santa Barbara, right? And so you have have these two things and there's typically some friction. And, you know, I think for me, when when I'm involved in these conversations and when I'm thinking it through on how I'm gonna go one way or another on, on policy is, we got to start at the beginning, right? And we got to say, okay, what are our goals? And what are the things that we know? We know that Santa Barbara is going to change. It has to change. We know that. And I think for me, one of the frustrating things is uh, when we talk about preserving community character I think it's, it's somewhat exclusive of a lot of different things, right? So we hidden in there is a context of like, we have enough people here. We don't need, uh, uh, we don't need people who have low income jobs or um, we don't need such and such fill in the blank, right? And so, so that's, that's one context. The other is we focus a lot on, on architecture and and making sure that um, our historic structures are protected and rightfully so, right? Because these are uh, things that are world renowned, but it can't stop there. Like we have to know that we have some architects in this town that are incredibly talented and the architects in this town and sometimes uh, we like to lump them in with developers. And even then I think that's, and we like to make developers the, the bad guys. And I don't even think that that's necessarily, um, right. Because someone's got to build the housing, right. The housing authority is a developer. People self-help housing is a <laughs> developer. And so, um, architects, they don't want to build something because when you talk to an architect about their building, this is, they, they consider this is their legacy. Yeah. And, and for me, what I would love to see us do, and this actually ha- uh, came up in conversation at a planning commission meeting uh, at the end of the 2020, it was about a uh, solar array installation on top of Ortega garage. And there was a lot of conversation about, you know, uh, this solar panel, it doesn't fit with our Spanish colonial architecture 
and it, it's not, it doesn't fit our, our historical character or our community character. And for me, I looked at that and one, it, it would power the library, it'd power uh, a 911 dispatch, it'd power some offices. So in the event of a, a natural disaster, right, which we are prone to have, yeah. we, would, we would be able to use the library as a shelter. We would have access to a 911 dispatch. We would have offices that we could use uh, during that time. And for me, if you look back at the over century, like in the last hundred years, uh, to say that uh, resilience infrastructure like that is not a part of our, uh, our character or our history, I think is an oversight. Yeah. Our, I mean, you, you look back at the early 1900s, I think it was 1925 earthquake. You look at the oil blowout of 1969. This is the birthplace of, of Earth Day, right? You look at the Thomas fire, the debris flow, all of these things, those are parts of our history. So why would we not build into our future resiliency? And it, and it comes with some of this infrastructure. Um, and, and so I would love that to be incorporated into this conversation about how we preserve our community character. I would love for us to think about the people, the generations of people, um, the, our Latinx community who has grown up here and include them in our discussions when we talk about preserving our community character. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that we can do that is by getting more affordable housing. And so, um, and, and I'll wrap it up here, but I've always held, I've done a lot of research on this and I've held, held a couple of things is like, yes, we need housing downtown, right? And we need to concentrate our housing, um, our most dense housing downtown because that's where it's gonna um, really fit in. But it's also the most expensive land. And it's, I don't think that that's where necessarily where we're gonna get our affordable housing for what we know here is the missing middle, 80% AMI to 120 AMI. And in my opinion, the way that you do that is you have an efficient and effective uh, development process. And the second thing that you need is funding. The housing authority right now has a, has a plot of land on Korea and Castillo, the parking lot, the commuter parking lot, yeah. where they wanna build missing middle housing. But the big barrier is there are not the same funding mechanisms that exist for lower income housing. And so as a city, what I would love us to do is start investigating. I brought this up uh, two meetings ago in Planning Commission. How do we get those funding streams? One, obviously we advocate with our state and federal uh, representatives. But two, I think uh, it's time that we look into something like a residential vacancy tax, right? So people have their second homes here, their vacation homes here. Some of our homes are being used, even if the city wants to ban them, some of our homes are being used as short-term rentals. And so there are ways for us to have a residential vacancy tax that can create a funding source for things like missile, uh, missing middle housing, housing vouchers, things that we can use for Santa Barbarans, right? And, and so uh, I'm all on board with, uh, getting housing downtown and I'm all on board with 
uh, where we're going in how we're shaping the development process, but we also need to be proactive and innovative and start thinking of ways of how we actually get the housing that we, we keep talking about, right? We need housing at all income levels, but we definitely need it in the middle. Yeah. The, the cost of land is too expensive to get missing middle housing downtown. And it's going to be the wealthiest uh, millennials, um, you know, or second sort of uh, penthouse homes for, for the, the rich. Cause it just, it doesn't make sense, especially in two of Europe, you know, if you're somebody who wants more space in a yard and maybe start a family, you know, um, it's, that's it, a tough sort of scene. And then the developers will tell you, like the math doesn't work we can never do that and that's why you're talking about funding mechanisms to sort of change all yeah. that so um let's talk about a, like one of the big controversial things that's going to be coming to the city council too i think on appeal is uh Pisel nuevo right so mm -hmm. so that that is uh talk about complicated you know you mentioned like shell and may and these things like that development agreement is like oh my goodness you know it's like <laughs> so so uh Pisel nuevo is the heart of downtown and uh, it's like all retail is struggling. There's a lot of vacancies that, even though it's not part of the development agreement, the San Nuevo and the Ortega building are these huge retail anchors. Uh, and there are those who say, we need to re-envision what Paseo Nuevo is, that we can't just allow it to be a mall and uh, continue and expect it to be sort of this, this anchor. And uh, of course, uh, there's, there, there's, you know, it's subjective, but there are people who say the mall should be giving a lot more to the city of Santa Barbara than what it historically has. And there are some new things that they are giving some payments. But, uh, you know, the, the sort of the big picture is, should Santa Barbara like approve this long-term development agreement with these, the, you know, the, this, these corporate owners, these investors who promise to, to do what's right for downtown and retail, or should Santa Barbara sort of say, no, this is prime real estate. Here's what we need from you. Let's, let's, we need more of this and this and this because we're struggling downtown. And of course the planning commission, uh, like it was very shocking and it was a long multiple day meeting, uh, you know, sort of said, no, we can't approve this development agreement. Like it's, 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 it's out of date, it's out of touch, and it's not gonna work for our needs. And now maybe there's been some revisions, I don't know, but it is gonna to come to the council. Where do you stand? What should the sale level be for this city? Yeah, and and you're right. Those were, I mean, uh, people can probably disagree with the decision or the outcome, but we did our job for those three, three long meetings. It was over 15 hours and that doesn't even count the countless hours on weekends and evenings trying to go through that development agreement because you're right it's super technical and and really trying to get a grasp for what we were talking about and and so the way I break it up in my mind and I'll only speak for myself because uh, I can't speak for the other planning commissioners but what this development agreement was is uh, we inherited this development agreement from the uh, now defunct um, redevelopment agency, right? And at the time, uh, redevelopment agency was, the funding was kind of viewed as uh, not necessarily, this might be overstating it, but free money. And so 
there was less incentive to really like drive a uh, terms that were really, really good for the redevelopment agency. Well, uh, I won't get too much into the details, but uh, at the time they were banking on the fact that retail, at the time retail was really strong and they were banking on the fact that it was gonna continue that way. And so uh, we had accepted this loan to fulfill or the redevelopment agency did. They had uh, got a loan from the then developer of the mall to live up to one of the uh, terms and agreements that they would build a parking structure. And the parking structure was more expensive than they had anticipated. And that loan, it had 10% interest compounded. And the only way to pay that uh, loan would be through uh, participation rents, right? So the, the mall would have to make a certain amount of money, anything beyond that, the city would be able to participate. And the reason why they made a deal like that is because they thought retail was gonna be really strong. Well, in the nineties, we had a recession. And so that wasn't the case. So we weren't getting participation rents. And so that loan, it just racked up, racked up, racked up. And, and so it basically precluded us from ever because now the loan is so large and the only way to pay is through participation rents. The day that the lease ends, that loan goes away. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it, it provides them free rent, right? Mm -hmm. And so for the duration of this lease, which is, I think it ends in uh, 2045, we don't get any rent for a really like prime piece of real estate. Mm -hmm. On top of that, we're, we're also paying things like recycling fees and we're paying part of their employee discount parking passes and and a myriad of other things, but a really um, small number that uh, put wave on this new uh, agreement, they said, we'll take on some of those things. It's a few hundred thousand dollars in the most optimistic of terms. But um, at this time, when city council gets presented with a term sheet basically, and they say, uh, here's kind of what we're thinking for the term sheet. Do you agree that we're going to explore giving Paseo Nuevo an option for 28 more years? So beyond the, the 45 left. And what that does is it provides them um, assurance so that they can go then get a, a line of credit um, that they can use to, to make, to do whatever they want really. Um, and so at that time, that was pre-COVID. And even though the term sheet got a unanimous vote from city council, there were still reservations that were expressed during that council meeting. So you fast forward and you are now, the second time that it comes to council, before it comes to planning commission, you then have a new council, but we're also in the time of COVID. And so now the Ortega building is empty. The Nordstrom's building is, is about to be empty, not at that council meeting. Two weeks after that is when Nordstrom's leave. Yeah. And, and so council then expresses some um, reservations, but then they unanimously push it forward. And so Paseo Nuevo comes to us and they say, city council is fully behind this. It's 100%, like here's a development agreement. And I thought, I think they thought that it was gonna be really easy. They probably never watched a planning commission meeting and seen um, Leslie and Deborah at work because my goodness, they are, they are great. Uh, so, um, really the conversation in my opinion is you have this Ortega building 
you have Paseo Nuevo, which is in the heart of downtown. Paseo Nuevo ownership group has uh, control over both leases. And now we have this Nordstrom's building, which Paseo Nuevo had every intention of also acquiring that lease. And you have these three properties that are really close together. They're really close to a De La Guerra Plaza renovation that we're going through. And we also had started this State Street subcommittee um, for city council to discuss transforming that, that downtown corridor into a Paseo, or basically a Paseo, right? And it just didn't seem right that we would only look at Paseo Nuevo in a vacuum and get very marginal benefit. And they'll tell you we invested $20 million, but it's misleading, right? Mm -hmm. Because many of the improvements that they had made, the ownership group before them granted, weren't making. They weren't keeping up with maintenance and, and simple things like painting. And so there's that aspect. And then the other aspect is most of that $20 million went into stormwater management uh, infrastructure and I'm all for that so they get some credit there but it's it's a requirement if they were going to do any renovation so it's it's a little misleading in in my opinion and there was marginal benefit so uh, between the two options that you gave it's like yeah we need we have this thing that they want 28 years let's negotiate some actual benefits for the city and in my opinion I think you negotiate um the what is that Ortega building going to be? Mm -hmm. And if they get the Nordstrom's building, that is a, a prime location for housing. So can we get those things for, for the city of Santa Barbara? I think we explore it. And it, it's pretty compelling that uh, we, had, um, we had the original person who was negotiated the original lease. And I asked him and I said, you know, with hindsight now, would you have negotiated this deal? And he said, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. So why would we continue a deal that the person that was in the room wouldn't have negotiated now, given the knowledge that he has, why would we extend it for 30 more years? Was right. that Dave Davis or who was that? Who no, was that, that was, uh, Coton, Mr. Coton. I forget what his first, uh, oh. first name is. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, can you imagine being the, the Paseo Nuevo owners and, running into, like you said, Leslie Wiscombe and, and Deborah Schwartz and everybody, but, you know, those two have, you know, Deborah in particular, just incredible precision on the issues and Leslie oh, yeah. too. And then, and Leslie presented the whole, um, you know, changes or the whole list of things. <laughs> it's like, holy cow, you know, it was, it was it, for people like us who love governance and love meetings like that was a, a legendary sort of series oh, yeah. of meetings for sure um so it's coming to the council uh you got any sort of like political insider you, you have any idea which way they're gonna go no i i did my job uh, <laughs> i think we did our job for for those meetings i was so exhausted after that so i think i'm just going to sit back and and watch and listen to the deliberations if council members have questions i'm more than happy to answer but um I put in more than enough work and I think uh, I'm just going to watch the appeal. I think it's at the end of March. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you just a couple more things. Um, you know, you talked about a couple of times, sort of a theme is having uh, more 
equity, more representation, more diversity in, in leadership on the boards. And we talked a little bit about how hard it is for a lot of people to even have an opportunity at a level playing field to be able to, to consider those things. Uh, what, what do you suggest? You know, if you're, if you're like a, you know, a kid in high school or something who, who feels like, oh, I can never be like those people or there's no, nobody believes in me or I, I don't have any, you know, I'm not as smart as that person. And, um, you know, no, my life's really, you know, th those real situations that, you know, we were in and you kind of lack the confidence until, you know, maybe someday somebody like mentors you or you somehow we are all different in how we get there. But you know, what would you say to, you know, some sort of young people who, who feel as though, they can never be like you or be like some of the people who they see in these leadership positions. Um, you know, what advice do you have for them? Yeah. And, and I think the first thing I would say is, um, and I, and so one of the best parts of my job at UCSB is, is mentoring students. And um, so I get what these you, opportunities. That, what do you do there? Sorry. We didn't talk about that, but what do you so do? I, I work for the Department of Recreation in uh, at UCSB, and I have a couple different hats that, that I wear. I'm also on a, a committee, a student medical emergency relief fund, where if students have some sort of medical emergency, we help them out with the cost or connect them with other resources. And so I run the their intramural program, which is a pretty large program. We typically have a staff of over 100 students, um, but we're, we're housed in student affairs, and that affects a, a lot of... Um, how we structure our programs and some of the um, resources that we're connected with on campus. And I, I love sports, but the best thing about my job is, is mentorship. So sometimes I get to have these, these conversations, right? And it's even baked into how we talk about uh, applying for jobs. You go look at a job description and uh, even for the most entry level of jobs, it says you have to have one to three years of experience or three to five years of experience. And, and the fact of the matter is, is, you know, if you're the right person, you, you're set up for that, that job or that role or what have you. And the, and the biggest thing that I try to get across is, you know, I have made tons of mistakes. I have been unsuccessful many, many times. And I think the, the best outcomes have come from some of my biggest failures, right? So look at city council. Um, I didn't get appointed. I didn't get a single vote, but I learned something and I applied it the next time to another situation. I could have very well been unsuc unsuccessful that time, but it would have, uh, I would have learned something else. And so I would say one, that's an important mindset to have, but I think it's also on us now who do have these positions. And I, and I tell this to students all the time is like, remember all of the times and all the obstacles that you encounter and make sure that when you're in that role later in life, that you try to break down some of those obstacles and those barriers. And that's something that I hold near and dear to my heart is I, I want to make sure that anyone who shared a background like mine never has to go through the difficult and tough times that I did, that I go back and I break down some of those systemic structures that were so hard to navigate, the type of structures that make you want to quit, right? So I don't, the people who feel that way, 
I empathize with that situation 100%. But for any sort of kid or, or person that feels like, uh, I can't do it, you know, I've worked in on many campuses, I've interacted with quite a few people, I've, I've been with organizations, and you, you come to realize there are a lot of people faking it until they figure it out, right? Like, there are people that have the confidence and they, and that's what you see on the outside, but they are figuring it out as they go, just like the rest of us. And so I encourage uh, people as much as possible, if you're passionate about something, go and do it. I think one of the, I talked about how challenging it, it kind of was at planning commission. I kind of briefly mentioned it, but I really experienced it. It was not a space that I felt comfortable in at all. Uh, there, there were times, a lot, I would say for the first 10 months, it wasn't until like November, December, where I walked out of a meeting, I said, okay, I belong. Like this mm. is, I found, found my place. Mm. I would walk out of meetings and I would just think, man, I don't, I don't know if I'm cut out for this, or I don't know that um, I'm the person for this. But you know, what was encouraging is that I was watching um, council meetings and Alejandro Gutierrez, right? New council member. Uh, and she's on there and she's very passionate. She's speaking about these things. But one of the most encouraging things that I would see is she was not afraid to say, hey, 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 hold up. I'm new. I don't understand necessarily these topics. Like, can you explain it to me so that I can understand? Or she would conversely say, you know, there are people that are watching this that might not understand. Mm -hmm. Can you explain it so that they can understand? It's just saying that, right? That mm -hmm. little thing affected me in a big way because it told me, okay, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to know every... Um, in and out of reading design plans and that sort of thing. I have my role. I'm gonna advocate for these things. These are the things that I'm gonna focus on and I'm gonna trust that um, other planning commissioners with their strengths, they're gonna focus on those other things, right? And so uh, I think the, the best advice I can give someone who's on the fence, wants to be involved, but they're afraid is just jump in, jump in, get out there and if, anyone is listening or watching this and they want someone in their corner, come reach out to me, please. I, I would be more than happy to, but I think just getting out there and getting in the arena and being a part of the conversation is you're going to learn the other stuff, but our city, our community, we need those people. We need them in these conversations because these are important conversations about things that really affect people and their everyday lives and what, what outcomes they're gonna have a decade from now. Do you have a mentor or somebody who, and I don't mean like in the official sense where a mentor was assigned to you, but growing up, did you have somebody who came into your life and, and, and really allowed you to be who you were, bring out the best in you, inspire you? And if so, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that person? Yeah. Uh, um, I can't give you, I, I think about a lot of people. Yeah. I think for me, uh, so during my uh, Civilian Formation Commission interview, one of the things that I had said was, you know, 
I talked about some of the the struggles and I and I try as as often as possible to be really open with people about some of the things that I experienced growing up or that I experienced even uh, when I graduated high school and moved to places where I didn't know anybody because I want people to know like there are struggles and, and that's okay. And I wouldn't trade any of them for the world. But one of the things that I think about, one, I think anytime people talk about a mentor or someone who's influenced me, my mom comes to the top of the list, right? And you're talking about such a strong woman working two or three jobs. She would work graveyard shifts at CVS, uh, sleep for an hour if she could, sometimes in her car and then go to her second job. And like, this is a woman that's done it for decades of my life. And just in the last year, she uh, works one job now. And that, that is her retirement. That's her version of retirement. We joke about it all the time. Um, but throughout my life, there were always these uh, critical moments where things either broke my way or I had someone step in and, and that could have changed everything. I wouldn't be here talking to you uh, if I didn't have the type of luck that I, that I had. Mm -hmm. And I think back at I, my senior year, right? I didn't, of high school, I didn't intend on going to college at all, but I had a friend and he was going to apply to college. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Maybe I'll go visit him. Mm -hmm. But I had a soccer coach at the time who, and I, again, and I think other first generation students will understand this. I don't know how to navigate a college application or the application process. Like nobody in my family had ever gone to college. So who am I going to ask? Right. So I was just like, whatever, I'm not going to go. And a soccer coach at the time sat me down in front of his computer and he's like, okay, you know, fill out these applications here. I'm going to have you fill it, type out this essay. And then we got to the part where I realized, Oh, I got to pay for these applications. I can't do that. Like we can't afford it. And he, he, paid for all of my college applications and I got in. And, and so I think back at moments like that, there was a time in undergrad where I was doing poorly at school. I was trying to navigate systems that I had never been a part of. Um, no one ever taught me how to, uh, to study or to, to be a good student. And I'm also just out of place. I never, I didn't find necessarily someone who had the same background as me right on campus and I had a mentor and he's like listen uh, I was working at the department of recreation at the time on campus at Cal State San Marcos he's like listen you you're a good worker you're a good person but you're doing really poorly in school and I and he he found out one way or another and he's like I'm going to connect you with these resources on campus and the only way that you can work for me is if you get your grades up and so sure enough, through that, I learned how to study. I learned how to, to plan my time. I learned how, there were times where, um, like I said, I was ex so close to experiencing homelessness, so close to not having anywhere to go. And I had people in my life who were like, you know what, let me ask, let me ask my mom if you can stay. And to this day, those are now my families. And, and so throughout my life, I've had all of these pivotal moments um, and, and people who have taught me so much. And I, I consider myself one of the luckiest people you will ever meet 
But I also recognize that in each of those moments, there were failures, right? There were policy failures. There were um, the structures that exist to make, to put people in those positions. Those are decisions that were made by real people in real positions of power to make those decisions. And it doesn't have to be that way. And so um, I am in any way, that's why I I shared with you, I feel responsibility to go back and make sure that we change those structures so that these aren't the outcomes, right? So in terms of mentors, I have a ton and Mm -hmm. I learned from a lot of different people and I think I can learn from just about anyone, but um, I've been fortunate enough for in those times where I've had to avoid people stepping in and, and filling it for me and um, I'll forever be in their debt. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, you mentioned your mom having three jobs and sleeping in her car. And so sometimes it's like a good, you know, it's important to talk about that because I think a lot of people will just look at you and, you know, hear you and think, oh, well, you're good. You know, like you made it, like you must've been fine, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I would argue probably if you asked every planning commissioner, for example, about like what job their parent had, probably was not your situation, you know? And so it's yeah. like, a, it's a stark illustration of we're not all the same in terms of our experiences and how we got here. And, uh, for some people have had to work really hard and everyone has to work hard, but some people have had to work a little bit harder <laughs> to just be in the same room as some other people. And so that's a good, that's a good visual, you know, and if I think for a lot of uh, Hispanic and, you know, Mexican American Latino families and people of color, uh, your story is like, not, it is not that uncommon to us, you know, uh, but for a lot of people, it's like, really, you know, and it's, this is, well, we don't talk about those things because we're, we're told it's like a shame. Thing. Like we don't need to talk about it. You know, it's, we don't want people to judge us, you know? And so it goes back to all that sort of trauma. <laughs> it's like, you know, we're not even allowed to talk about these things because we're afraid we'll be judged, even though there's nothing wrong with these things, you know? So it's interesting. Yeah. Hey, last thing, uh, Gabe is, uh, you know, you, uh, you, you sought the appointment you're on the planning commission. And now you're going to be on the Civilian Information Commission. And I'm just wondering, you know, and I don't want you to plan your whole life right now here for us or tell us, but I mean, do you sort of see yourself as maybe trying to make another run at the city council uh, someday or or some kind of office? You know, you're young and and you're, you know, well positioned to to go a lot of different directions. And so just put you on the spot a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate the question. Um, And I'll I'll go back to... uh, it's something I've been asked before, right? Is after the appointment process. Um, and then when I was interviewing for, for planning commission, it's one that Randy Rouse had asked me. said, hey, I remember you, you applied for city council. Why didn't you run against Megan? And uh, I told him the honest answer is, you know, I got to see her in the role and she, she did a much better job than I could have done. And so what's the point of me, me running uh, against her if I think that she's gonna she's gonna be good and better on on the issues that I care about most so where where can I be of help in the community I I thought planning commission and so now I'm living on the the east side in Alejandro Gutierrez's uh district and I feel 
the same exact plays. I watch her and I think that is exactly who we need on, on city council. And so when it comes to city council, um, where I live right now, I don't think you get much better. Mm. Now, in terms of, um, will I run for something? I think so. I think at some point, yeah. Uh, and it's gonna be for something or at a time when I think that I can contribute and on the topics that I'm really, really passionate about. Mm -hmm. And if that time never comes, then it never comes. But um, I think, yeah, I think there, there does come a time at some point. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, it's uh, you got a long, long, good uh, path ahead of you, you know, so there's no need to rush things. And I think you hit on a good point, which is some people run for their ego. Some people run because they want the attention on them and um, other people run because they really believe in the issues and the causes. And when you really love something, right, you know, you don't have to rush it. It, it, it'll probably be there, whether it's yeah. day, tomorrow, or eventually, you know, you're going to find it and the paths are going to cross. And so that's, it's refreshing to hear somebody, you know, sort of say, I can, Hey, I can be patient. I can wait. I don't need to be opportunistic yeah. right now. You know, so I uh, gave my pleasure uh, talking to you and I look forward to uh, seeing the work that you're going to do in the planning commission again, in the civilian formation commission and, uh, have a, have a great day. And, uh, you know, I guess we're recording on a Sunday, so go watch the Super Bowl. And root for yeah. You. <laughs> thank, thank you so much, Josh, for, for having a, a little conversation with me today. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care. Take care.